0: This is Counselor Toolbox, bringing you practical tools for recovery from mental health and addiction issues. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. CEUs are available on demand for this presentation through our sponsor, All CEUs. Go to allceus.com/counselortoolbox to register. Hi, and welcome to your course on co-occurring disorders and their impact on treatment. Brought to you by AllCEUs.com. In this course, you're going to develop a broad biopsychosocial definition of co-occurring disorders. You're going to learn about the reciprocal interaction between mental health, physical health, and addiction. We'll discuss the multiple contributing factors of mood disorders to include physical issues and issues stemming from addictive behaviors. And explore ways to simultaneously address multiple disorders. This presentation is based in part on the following texts. Medication assisted treatment for opioid addiction in opioid treatment programs. It's a treatment improvement protocol or a tip that's produced by SAMHSA that you can order off the SAMHSA website. Strategies for developing treatment programs for people with co-occurring disorders, also developed by SAMHSA. And treating adolescents with co-occurring disorders by Holly A. Hills and the Florida Certification Board. All of these can be found free online. So let's go ahead and get started. What exactly are co-occurring disorders? Well, what we're talking about in broad terms is mental health, physical health, and behavioral or addictive behaviors and how they interact. They concurrently occur. You can't just have somebody with an addiction issue who doesn't also have some sort of concurrent depression. Now whether it meets the category or the criteria for major depressive disorder, you know, that may not be. But we have to look at how the mental impacts the physical and vice versa, and how addictive and behavioral disorders also impact both the mental and physical health of the individual. It's important to remember that the symptoms of each of these disorders can cause or worsen the others. But likewise, anything that improves in one area is probably going to have positive effects on the other areas. So if their physical health starts to improve, they may be able to concentrate more. They may be able to sleep better. They may be more likely to eat a little bit healthier which will all have positive impacts on helping ameliorate any behavioral or addictive disorders. So I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but I want you to see that there is an interaction, there is an interplay, and we cannot stress enough that people need to pay attention to all of these. People are not just mental health or physical health. They're biopsychosocial individuals. So a general definition of addiction, let's start there because that's the one that, um, well, let's just start there. It's a substance or activity used to escape from pain, and that can be emotional or physical pain, despite negative consequences. So it's something that I do in order to escape from some sort of distress. And I keep doing it even though it's causing me problems in my life because The reward from escaping from the pain is greater. It's worth it to me to deal with all these negative consequences so I don't have to feel the pain. And I want you to consider addictions such as drugs, gambling, and sex. You have three very different um, addictive behaviors or addictions here, but they all kind of interact on the same or act on the same um, pleasure pathways, the dopamine pathways. And it's important to understand that regardless of how someone is activating those dopamine pathways, long-term excessive activation is going to lead to brain changes. So, moving on. How can each of the following symptoms contribute to physical or mental health issues? Tolerance or withdrawal. Well, when somebody experiences tolerance with an addiction, that means they need more of the same substance to get the same high, or they need to start combining substances or go to something stronger. Now, we know if this is happening, the body has adjusted to that substance. So you can see where there's a physical impact. Now, do you want to say it's causing physical health problems? I would say yes. but. Not everybody would go quite that far at this point. It is important to understand though, that once the body starts making changes to get, it sort of gets used to having the drugs in the system. So it quits doing the things it would normally do, or it makes room in order to have the drugs so people will start needing to have the substance or the activity in their life to feel normal. Now, when I say activity, you know, remember in the last slide, we talked about gambling and sex. Our pleasure pathways, our dopamine pathways, are excited when we do things that produce pleasure. So whether it be taking drugs or alcohol, which obviously, you know, drugs cross the blood-brain barrier. I can't talk today. Anyway, um, and create a situation where the dopamine is released or sex or gambling when there is a tension and release or when there is a pleasurable outcome the brain is flooded with dopamine and for lack of a more clinical term right now happy chemicals when the brain gets used to having the stimulus all the time it's going to adjust so in order to feel happy people have to be engaging in the addictive behavior that's why sometimes people wake up and they take a hair of the dog that bit them it's so they can feel normal I've worked with clients before who learned to do a job or learned to do something when they were high and they couldn't figure out how to do it when they were not high. They had to relearn the process. So tolerance or withdrawal tells you that the body is adjusting to having this substance or this activity, this excessive amount of dopamine in the system. Use of more of the substance or more of the activity for longer than intended. Well. When we talk about physical health, this may mean neglecting nutrition, may mean neglecting sleep. So those could be a problem. When we talk about mental health issues, if you're using this addiction, if you're using this activity for longer than intended, you're probably starting to neglect important things in your life, which eventually may lead people back to starting to feel depressed or anxious or guilty or remorseful. A persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to control use. I don't know about you, but if I've done something or if I'm trying to do something and I'm not successful at it, I get frustrated. And we know when we're talking about the diagnosis of depression, one of the key features of depression is a sense of hopelessness and helplessness. So if you feel hopeless and helpless to control this addiction, you can see where we're headed toward mental health issue a great deal of time is spent in activities necessary to obtain use or recover from the effects of the addictive behaviors so again if you're spending a lot of time and you're spending more time than intended you're probably starting to neglect other areas of your life so those aren't creating pleasure for you anymore even worse it could get to the point where there are people, places, things, situations in your life that you used to enjoy that now feel stressful to you because they're questioning your use or your engagement in the addictive behavior. Important social, occupational, or recreational activities are given up or reduced because of the addiction. We already kind of hit that on the last slide, but as you start giving up your sober social supports, then if you have so social supports, they're probably not the healthiest ones. Occupational activities are given up. If you start slacking at work, if you start being there just kind of in body but not in mind or spirit, you can start losing jobs. You can start getting bad reviews, which can lead to depression, anxiety, stress, If you get fired, fear that you're going to get fired, whatever the case may be, when people start having problems at work, it generally impacts their mental health. And recreational activities are given up. Now, you may be saying, well, recreation is recreation. So what? Recreation is where we rest and recharge. So if the person is not resting and recharging, they're experiencing stress at work and at home, and they've given up social supports and they're kind of out there on their own you can see where life can start to get overwhelming really quickly because they are an island unto themselves and addictive behaviors are continued despite negative consequences and when we talk about negative consequences we look at the health effects is it causing the person to get sick more quickly or more easily is it negatively impacting sleep Has it caused something like hepatitis or HIV? Has it led to problems in relationships? Has it led to job loss, home loss, financial despair or destruction, legal problems? Any or all of these are negative consequences that can occur because of any addiction, whether it be sex, drugs, gambling, shopping, you know, fill in the blank. So factors contributing to the appearance or the development or relapse of addictive behaviors. Physically, you know, we talked about these different symptoms. When the brain gets used to having basically too much dopamine in it all the time, it has to adjust. It tries to maintain what we call homeostasis. So repeated engagement in these addictive behaviors causes the brain to adapt this circuitry which leads to impaired impaired control over further use, which is a fancy way of saying you don't feel normal if you're not engaging the addiction anymore because your brain is not doing what it's supposed to do anymore. The wonderful news is 99% of the time the brain can recover once the person quits using and quits flooding the brain circuitry with all of the happy chemicals all the time. Neurochemical imbalances or dysfunctional reward circuits can also contribute to the development of dysfunctional behavior. So what does that mean? That means somebody can be born with reward circuits or dopamine systems or serotonin systems that are not functioning, quote, normally. You can have a brain injury, which can cause something like this, or simply malnutrition and not getting enough sleep can cause the body to be depleted of all the necessary building blocks to make the happy chemicals to keep the system running. So there are a lot of physical impacts that we need to consider. One of the things that a lot of people are really willing to work on, motivated, well, motivated might be a stretch, but they think it's easier to work on the physical aspects like getting more sleep, um, regulating their circadian rhythms, and eating more healthfully, than it is to do the mental health work, which in most cases is probably true because the mental health work can be exhausting and terribly emotionally distressful sometimes. So the good news is you can get people to start working on their physical health before or early on in treatment. Mental factors related to addiction that contribute to the development of worse addiction mental health problems and physical problems cognitive and affective distortions which impair the perceptions and compromise the ability to deal with feelings in recovery we call this thinking thinking when you start thinking of the world as a negative place as a scary place as an uncontrollable place when you always see the glass as half empty When you're looking for people to do you wrong, these are all the cognitive distortions that start to contribute to people feeling depressed, anxious, hopeless, and helpless. We need to address these because as people feel this way, if depression sets in, guess what? How do a lot of people with addictions deal with depression? They get high or they use their addictive behaviors so we need to pay attention when we have someone who is starting to go down this depression or anxiety slope to make sure they don't go down too far because that can cause an addiction relapse exposure to trauma or stressors that overwhelm an individual's coping abilities well we talked earlier about the fact that addictions are used to escape from pain Now, do people wake up in the morning and go, hey, I think I'm going to choose the most dysfunctional way to cope as possible? No, this is a last ditch effort to survive with the tools they have with the situation that they're in at this current time. So when someone is exposed to trauma or stressors that overwhelm their coping abilities, they don't have the social supports, they don't have the tools to deal with it, they've got to make the pain stop. One of the ways to do this is to sort of numb it out with the addiction. Now when they sober up or quit engaging in the behavior, that pain is still there. They still have the depression, the anxiety, the traumatic stress, whatever it is. So again, we have these things working together. Can they deal with it when they sober up? Probably not, unless something radical has changed and they've developed coping skills overnight or gotten a sober support system. So. They sober up or quit using the addictive behavior. That pain is still there. Guess what they do? Go back into the addiction until they can figure out a better way to cope and deal with the pain. And the presence of co-occurring psychiatric disorders in people who engage in addictive behaviors. So if someone has a pre-existing mental illness, they are going to be more likely Or, well, yeah, they're going to be more likely to develop an addiction. They did some studies and they found that in people with severe and persistent mental illness, 50 to 75% of those people had an addiction um, during the course of their life. And vice versa. When we look at people who have an addiction, about 50% to 75% have a mental health diagnosis or a mental health disorder during the course of their life. These things don't, you know, you can see that they're kind of interwoven. One doesn't generally occur without the other. Socially, how does addiction impact a person? Well, it disrupts healthy social support systems and causes problems in interpersonal relationships, which impact the development of resiliencies that's a really long way of saying it takes the healthy people the healthy relationships and disrupts them and it keeps people from developing good coping skills which would help them bounce back when life gets really tough so where did i come up with all of these actually the asam website um the american society of addictions medicine and the website is right here has these listed as contributing factors to addiction. So I didn't just pull them out of the air. I'm not just coming up with the fact that these things are interrelated on my own. You can find them on the ASAM website, and it's got a lot of other tools that you can look at um, that are really helpful to help people understand the interaction between bio, psycho, social, and addiction. So we want to talk about how the symptoms of mental health disorders may impact physical health and addictive disorders. We already know that when we have somebody with an addiction, there's a chance that their addiction is going to make their mental health and their physical health worse. Probably a pretty darn good chance. Um, But let's take those and look at it from a mental health perspective. If somebody has a mental health diagnosis, how is it going to impact their physical health their addiction now we can kind of see how the addiction is probably going to get worse with the mental health but what about physical health how does a mood disorder or a mental health disorder impact people's physical health so we're going to take depression and anxiety first these are the most common ones people who present in treatment, whether they meet the criteria for a major depressive disorder or persistent depressive disorder, used to be known as dysthymia, generalized anxiety, we're going to see a lot of similar symptoms. And this is something I want you to really look at because when we're talking about the mood disorders, there are a lot of overlap in symptoms, which could mean either A, multiple disorders are co-occurring hey there's that word again or um we're not diagnosing correctly so we need to take a look at what symptoms are present and maybe address what's causing those symptoms i'll explain a little bit as we go through this so depression depressed mood or loss of interest or pleasure think back to a time in your life where you felt depressed or you just didn't care about anything, you didn't have the energy to get off the sofa, you were just like, whatever. It could be because you were exhausted. It could be because you were sick. It could be because you were actually clinically depressed. When you don't have pleasure in anything, it makes getting out of bed a real drag. Which leads us to our next symptom, psychomotor agitation or retardation. And I've always hated that phrase because, you know, we could say it a different way. But it means you're either restless and fidgety or everything you do, you're moving in slow motion. So your motor skills, you're either like really jittery and fidgety or it takes forever. And when we talk to some people who have major depressive disorder, they talk about how depression hurts. And this is one of those symptoms that kind of falls under psychomotor agitation or retardation. When you're really depressed, sometimes your body feels like it weighs 10 tons. So just getting up and walking to the kitchen is exhausting. Important to remember that. Just getting up and taking a bath takes more energy than they can possibly muster because their arms feel like they weigh 50 pounds. Think about this when we're thinking about the impact on physical health, because people are probably going to go, no, I don't have the energy to get up and eat right now, or I don't have the energy to get up and bathe. Then we end up with people that are kind of sitting in the same place, watching TV in their own filth for days on end this is when you really start to see what we would call somebody who's clinically depressed Um, sleep disturbances that can mean sleeping too much it can mean not being able to sleep or it can mean not being able to stay asleep you fall asleep and then you wake up multiple times throughout the night so these sleep disturbances are a problem think about if you've ever been doing something whether you were in college and you just weren't sleeping enough or you had a new baby in the house or something was going on and you hadn't gotten enough sleep for a few days we're just talking a few days here we're not talking months how much harder was it to get things done how much more effort did it feel like it took to get up and do stuff and how much less enthusiasm did you have for doing anything that wasn't mandatory? So these sleep disturbances cause fatigue and loss of energy. Go figure. And difficulty concentrating. When we're sleepy, when we're depressed, it's hard to concentrate. When we just don't care about anything, it's hard to concentrate. Now, in depression, there are also sometimes symptoms of guilt and worthlessness and eating disturbances. Guilt and worthlessness is pretty self-explanatory. Eating disturbances, very much like sleep disturbances. Some people, when they get depressed, they don't eat at all. Other people, when they get depressed, may seek out comfort foods. So they may eat an entire pizza or an entire gallon of ice cream or even not to that quantity. Maybe they just quit eating good food and the only thing they're willing to eat is comfort food so in depression we start seeing a lack of enthusiasm to do things everything takes a whole lot more effort it's exhausting we can't sleep or we're sleeping too much we're just not feeling rested we're having difficulty concentrating life is just not very fun so let's think for a moment about how that might impact how we do at work how we interact with others, what we do to rest and recharge. Yeah, see, all these things are probably going to the wayside because you just don't have the energy. Now, why is anxiety on this slide? Well, sliding over to the anxiety. Excessive anxiety or worry about a variety of things. People with generalized anxiety disorder feel stressed out. And it can be anything from... What some people refer to as being high strung to somebody feeling like their heart is just going to beat out of their chest like constantly. Now we're stopping short of panic attacks. We're just talking about somebody who is palpably anxious. So they too have psychomotor agitation. They're restless. They're keyed up. They're on edge. Sleep disturbances, not sleeping enough. Not being able to stay asleep most often, which leads to fatigue and loss of energy. They want to sleep. They can't sleep. They can't stay asleep. It's frustrating, which, again, can get exhausting if you get frustrated that you're stuck in a circle. Difficulty concentrating for the same reasons. You're not getting enough sleep. You're worried about stuff all the time. You just can't focus. There's just constantly stuff going on in your head which leads to irritability. I know if I'm stressed out and I'm not sleeping enough and I'm exhausted and I can't concentrate, yeah, I'm pretty irritable. And I hold that irritability and that stress in my neck and in my back, which is where we get muscle tension from. So stay with me here. So we have somebody who's worried constantly, stressed out, can't focus, which is probably negatively impacting work and relationships, they're not sleeping well, can't concentrate, they're irritable, and they're in pain, at a certain point that gets exhausting and they start to feel, yep, you guessed it, hopeless and helpless because it doesn't ever seem to stop. They can't seem to get any relief, which moves us over to depression. This is important. This is very, very important in my opinion. A lot of patients that I've worked with that have presented with depressive symptoms have concurrent anxiety, and it's this anxiety that keeps them revved up and just constantly pedal to the floor, running on high speed and burning themselves out that leads to the depression. So in order to address the depression, we also have to address the anxiety. They've got to be able to back off. They've got to be able to Wind down, rest, and recharge. Now, if you can't do that, if you feel stuck, then you may look for a way to escape. Alcohol, benzodiazepines, opiates. When I've worked with patients before who were addicted to opiates, one of the things that they regularly comment on is how much better they feel and how much more energetic they feel when they take opiates. Now, opiates are depressants, they slow you down, they numb the pain too, but they slow you down. So let's think about that. If something that normally makes people sleepy and slows them down, makes a person feel their uber selves, more energetic, like a million bucks, that tells me that there's probably some anxiety going on somewhere and they're running on empty. So we need to look at how to help them rest and recharge. So opiates, well, just, uh, just about any addiction can be used to try to numb or escape from depression and anxiety. Many, many times, depression and anxiety co-occur. And when people are depressed and anxious, they generally are not sleeping enough, not eating well, and letting themselves get... Letting is kind of a bad word to use. It sounds like it's a choice. They are getting run down and exhausted, which is going to start to impact their immune system and their ability to just kind of function. Okay. So what if they don't have depression or anxiety? Are they in the clear? <laughs> I wished, but No. PTSD, post-traumatic stress. A lot of our patients have traumatic incidents in their, in their past, whether it be growing up in a violent household or things they saw or experienced while they were in their addiction or maybe as part of their job. People are exposed to trauma and stressors a lot. Now, why does one person, and this isn't on the slide, but I'm going to take this little road, take it with me for a few minutes. Why does one person experience a trauma and not have developed post-traumatic stress, and another person experiences the same exact thing, maybe two cops that respond to the same scene, but the second person develops post-traumatic stress? Why is that? Well, we don't know exactly. (laughs) Don't you love that answer? But we do know there are certain risk factors or protective factors depending on how you look at it for the development of post-traumatic stress. If the person feels similar or feels um, if the victim is similar to the responder or to the person witnessing the event then there's a good chance it will impact them more and they're at higher risk of PTSD. So if a cop responds to a situation where maybe a three-year-old drowned And that cop also is a father then they are at higher risk than someone who is not a parent of developing PTSD now is it that simple oh no Um, that doesn't explain it completely or even a whole lot other things to consider did they have good social support within 24 hours 24 hours is your crucial window two hours is your super crucial window for getting support after a traumatic incident. If they had the ability to talk with colleagues or family members or the chaplain or somebody and get that social support, then there's an improved chance that they won't develop traumatic stress disorder. Have they had mental health issues or stressors in the past six months or substance abuse issues? If so, then we know that they already may be kind of worn down. So how similar they are, whether they get social support, and whether they have, six, in the past six months, a history of a bunch of stressors, mental health issues, or addictions. So those are the things we really want to ask at the beginning. When we're talking about whether somebody's going to develop a post-traumatic stress disorder, or it's going to be acute stress and they'll deal with it and they'll move on in any event let's just talk about a traumatic event exposure whether it's pts post-traumatic stress or ptsd with the little disorder on the end somebody's exposed to a traumatic event i don't care who you are i don't care how similar or dissimilar you are to the victim it's going to impact you and it's going to take some emotional energy now If it develops into a disorder, the person may have recurrent intrusive memories, nightmares, or flashbacks. All right. So again, we're disrupting sleep and maybe even some wake time, which can cause a lot of anxiety. If you're constantly worried that you're going to have a flashback, if you're constantly trying to protect yourself from anything that might cause a flashback, that's exhausting. And it's going to take a lot of time out from experiencing positive things. Marked distress after exposure to related stimuli. Now, if you experienced an event or a trauma, maybe through a car crash, then things like driving on the interstate could be stimuli that remind you of the trauma. So simple things in life or everyday things in life, maybe simple is not the right word, can start to cause a lot of stress and ongoing distress because everywhere you go, there are reminders of the trauma, which takes us to you start avoiding reminders. If everywhere you go, there are reminders of the trauma, what's one way to avoid these reminders? Engage in the addictive behavior because then you're focused on that addiction. If it's internet porn, you are focused on that internet porn. You're not focused on what's going on outside. You don't have to worry about seeing something that reminds you of the trauma. Some people get irritable, develop aggressive or self-destructive or reckless behavior. It's sort of a reaction to feeling helpless, which can cause physical problems. It can also cause stress in relationships, which can lead to, guess what, depression and anxiety. Hypervigilance. When someone is hypervigilant, they have this major startle response multiple times a day. And it's exhausting. And see, we're coming back to that exhausting word again. Many people who have post-traumatic stress develop some level of hypervigilance. And the number, the frequency, and the intensity of these startle reactions are going to really sort of dictate how much energy is spent with this PTS or PTSD every day. So if you're getting stressed out and startled all the time, every time a door opens or a cabinet closes too loudly or a door slams and you're jumping out of your skin, it's going to start causing problems in concentration and sleep disturbances. Go figure. So again, we're seeing some of these symptoms overlap between depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress. All of these disorders or mental health issues can cause exhaustion, can cause a person to not care as much about or not have as much energy to take care of themselves. Other features of PTS, inability to recall key features of the traumatic event that may or may not be important for people. Some people don't want to remember. It may lead to persistent negative global beliefs about oneself and the world, that the world is a dangerous place, that they are worthless, that there's undue guilt, which takes us back to addiction, that stinking thinking that can cause people to want to numb the pain because they feel like they can't control anything in their world. It also leads us back to some of the characteristics of depression, the negativity and the sense of hopelessness and helplessness. Persistent negative trauma-related emotions, fear, anger, and guilt. People who have post-traumatic stress disorder may tend to be more unhappy. And, you know, I don't really blame them if they can't sleep and they're constantly being haunted by nightmares and flashbacks and it seems like they can't control what's going on. One of the things that I encourage my patients to do very early on, if they've got post-traumatic stress or anything, I ask them, what is the survival value of this symptom? Because our body does things to help us survive. So once you wrap your head around the survival value, then you can start to deal with it. Now, for example, hypervigilance. The survival value is to protect the person so they don't um, encounter that trauma again, so they're not put in a position of threat or danger again. Now, hypervigilance means you're startled and you're on edge in situations where you don't need to be. So once the person starts to understand, okay, this symptom, this reaction is designed to keep me safe, but I'm safe and I don't need to startle then they can start dealing with those reactions and talking themselves down more quickly when something startles them or triggers that hypervigilance reaction. Feeling alienated from others, detachment or estrangement. Sometimes it can be because others just don't understand. Other times it can be because they don't want to get emotionally involved or emotionally connected to anyone else because they don't want to get hurt again. Maybe they lost somebody in a trauma. Um, So these are all things that we want to consider. How is the mental health disorder affecting their social supports, their ability to sleep, good nutrition, taking care of themselves, enjoyment of daily activities? And is the pain such that they just have to escape? They can't tolerate the pain anymore, which may lead to addictive behaviors. Schizophrenic disorders. Well, people with schizophrenia have delusions, hallucinations, disorganized speech, grossly disorganized or catatonic behavior, and negative symptoms. So, you know, we're not going to talk a whole lot about this because schizophrenia is not nearly as prominent as depression, anxiety, and PTSD in the general population. But it's important to recognize that people with schizophrenia may live in a very scary world and you can't convince them delusions and hallucinations are egocentric. you cannot convince them that the sky is blue if they think it's purple you cannot convince them that the squirrels are safe and are not going to hurt them if they think that's true it's important to remember this so we have to join them in their world And experience it for what it is. Is it a safe place or is it a scary place? A lot of people with schizophrenia have difficulty forming any sort of supportive relationships. Which is one of our greatest buffers against stress. So you take somebody who lives in a scary world and doesn't have a whole lot of social support. They're probably going to feel stressed out, exhausted. On top of that. If they're taking antipsychotic medications, and even some of our atypical antipsychotics are second generation, they have some extreme side effects. Weight gain, lethargy, exhaustion, Um, all of these may contribute to feelings of depression, frustration, hopelessness, and helplessness. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk a little bit about personality disorders and how they also impact the person and the development of mood disorders, physical maladies, somatization, and it may worsen addictive disorders.